Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hello and welcome to a brand new Arsblog Arscast right here on Arsblog.com. How are you? Hope you're well. Excited for the weekend, a North London derby coming up away from home, sort of-ish, kind of, but not really, at Wembley, which of course is not anyone's home. Tottenham like to claim all these records, don't they? The biggest home attendance of all time. Not your home. Not your home. It's temporary. Your squatters, essentially. Maybe renters would be... You know, a better way of putting it. But still, it's it's not your home. But we're going there, and we've had some fun there, haven't we? Down the years, we've had some good moments, some really good moments, and some kind of scary, weird moments, I think it's fair to say. You think back to that Wigan uh, semi-final, eight minutes, eight minutes away from losing to Wigan in an FA Cup semi-final when your potential... Uh, opponents in the final were Hull City and I can't remember who the other team were at the time it was someone like Aston Villa or Millwall or somebody like that I can't remember but it was somebody equally beatable but that's where we were eight minutes eight minutes we were one nil down and then per Mertesacker got a goal and then he went to uh, penalties and uh, Lukas Fabianski was a bit of a hero Kim Schellstrom was a bit of a hero as well stepping up to score a penalty he said it was one of the greatest moments of his life. Uh, went to Wembley then in the final. And, you know, the start of that game wasn't great, was it? We've had our ups and downs, but the downs have generally been accompanied by very quick ups. So we were 2-0 down to Hull City, come back to win the final 3-2. And uh, the next year we win our semi-final, win the final easily. Didn't make it through the year after that, of course. But then last year beating Man City in the semi-final, beating Chelsea in the final. It's a good place. It's a good place for us. And we'll hope it's a good place for us again this weekend. Uh, Saturday, early Saturday for the North London Derby. Um, We'll be chatting about that game in a couple of moments' time with Amy Lawrence. And a bit later on, after Amy, I'll be catching up with Ken Early of Second Captains. You might remember we spoke to Ken at the start of the season, as we normally do, to get a bit of a preview. And we try and catch up at some point mid-season, but it's not quite mid-season now. It's about the two-thirds point. So I'll be talking to Ken about what he's thought of the Premier League season so far, some Arsenal, some chat about 
with the whole, you know, diving thing that's gone on this week. Maurizio Pochettino had things to say. Arsene Wenger had things to say. Tottenham players had dives to dive. So we'll be chatting about diving and VAR and all that kind of stuff with Ken. That's in a few minutes' time. But it's been a pretty quiet week, hasn't it, all in all, given that we'd uh, put in such a great performance on Saturday against Everton. Hat-trick of assists for Mkhitaryan. Hat-trick for Aaron Ramsey. Uh, debut goal for Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang. A lot to like about the way that we played. But that's the way the world, that's the way it works. When things are good, there's a lot less to say about the things. You know, I wrote about this during the week on the blog. If you haven't had a chance to check it out, you can read it. I think it was on Wednesday's post on arsblog.com. Just basically how when something good happens, it fades away. It's lovely, it's lovely, it's lovely, it's lovely, it's lovely. However, when something bad happens or when we have a bad defeat, it echoes and reverberates and resonates for an awful lot longer, which is understandable, of course, because there is a lot more to say about things when things go wrong. There's only so many ways you can say, well, that was lovely. That was nice. I enjoyed that. Now what? Whereas everyone's got an opinion on why something went wrong and why it went crazy and everything else. But you might think I'm complaining. I'm not complaining. I'm really not. I would like if between now and May, there weren't any of those uh, negative echoes and reverberations and shitstorms and brouhaha on the social media channels and all that kind of stuff. If we can just keep winning games, I will be very, very, very happy indeed. Because, look, everybody's life is just that little bit more bearable, less complicated, less agitated when we win. It may be a bit less frenetic. There may be a lot less going on online than we might like, but there's a whole big internet world out there. You can find something else to look at, to do, to pass your time. Or, you know, there's also, and I don't want to scare anybody here, a real world out there with clouds and puppies and trees and shit. You can go outside and, well, it's freezing though, isn't it, at the moment? Well, it is here. There's probably loads of you listening uh, who live in really warm places going, I'm already outside. I am actually listening outside. Well, yeah, fair play to you. You've stuck it to me. But what I'm saying generally is that Arsenal is such a big influence on our mood based on what they do on the pitch and how they do it. You know, I think we deserve, after what has been, in many ways, a trying season up to now, a period of relative calm and tranquility. Instead of picturing souls burning in the fiery pits of hell, we just look out over a beautiful lake. The sun is high in the sky, the sky is blue, birds are singing, people are frolicking gaily through the fields. That's what we want. That's what we want from the rest of this season, Arsenal. So if you wouldn't be so uh, unkind as to oblige, then I don't know how to finish that sentence based on the way that I started it and the syntax of the words. So there. But I think you know what I'm trying to say. I think you do. Right. Look, it's a bumper show, as I said. I've got a long chat with Ken to come, so let's move things on. And I'm delighted to welcome back to the show, as always, Amy Lawrence. Hi, Amy. Hello, Andrew. Let me ask you before we get into what's going on this weekend. uh, I know a little bit of time has passed, about a week or so. Your thoughts on what was an extraordinary 
month for Arsenal in January. Uh, Alexis Sanchez went out. Olivier Giroud went out uh, to Chelsea and uh, Manchester United, respect, uh, respectively. Theo Walcott went out. And in came Henrik Mkhitaryan and uh, Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang. And Mesut Ozil signed a new deal. Uh, a lot went down. What, what did you make of it all? Um a lot went down, but if something else had gone down in the shape of an absolutely humongous defensive midfield player who was really powerful and just like staying in their position and tackling and pe- people and giving the ball away easily, I think it would have been even more astounding. <laughs> but that's, you know, just a, some, a gripe that's been going on for about five years. Um, but apart from that, uh, it was very unusually active. And there are so many things that were surprising and uh, in the sense of if you'd have said at the beginning of the season that Arsenal would lose Sanchez, Giroud and Walcott in the same January window, having been responsible for over two-thirds of last season's goals between them, and having started the season with those three in the squad, I, I mean, that just strikes me so sort of un-Wenger-like on, on one hand in that you, you've come to expect sort of some conservatism in uh, yeah. in the transfer market. And that opens up the, all these fascinating questions about what is going on behind the scenes and if there's um, some you know, new influences and how that's impacting on the kind of old-fashioned power base uh, um, and how, how how things were run at the club for a long time. Uh, y- you know, everything that we talk about as well in terms of the overall picture of the window, I think, is slightly coloured in a kind of rainbow style by what happened last Saturday against Everton. Because to see the team come out and look quite invigorated and to see the proof of a very busy window manifest itself in a the signs that you want in terms of a reinvigorated attack that looks like it's got exciting new ingredients in it that look capable of gelling and integrating quickly um, definitely affects how you kind of try and assess the overall thing. And of course, judging on one on one game alone is 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 football all over in the modern world, but is probably a bit unrealistic. Yeah. But based on the evidence of last weekend, I think. Mkhitaryan in particular, I, I just felt watching that first game that at the time when the straight swap emerged with Sanchez, the gut, my gut feeling a bit was, well, that doesn't seem like a very fair deal. Mm. And that didn't feel like a very equal deal. Um, and yet watching his impact in that game with the caveat that Everton were rubbish, so, you know, that that, that is a factor. But all the same, he was really terrific and added so much value to the team um, instantly in quite a, a, a lot of different ways that suddenly it felt a lot more equal than it did at the time of the deal yeah. being announced. Uh, so that was a positive. And of course, you know, when, when the deal was struck, you think of getting the Man United Mkhitaryan. And I think what showed in that first game against Everton and even to an extent when he came on against Swansea and was positive in a difficult situation is that that's the Dortmund Mkhitaryan and not the Manchester United Mkhitaryan and all the things that people have said about him since uh, he joined the club is of a guy who who looks like he's taken off a really 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 heavy coat yeah yeah and you can 
feel the vibes of a, of someone who's who's almost taking off that heavy winter coat and skipping into the daisies. I mean, he looks <laughs> happy, motivated, inspired, ready. Um, you know, when you've had a bad time and you see some light at the end of the tunnel, it's it's a really great thing. And that's where I think the, the intrigue in the Mkhitaryan deal is, you know, you tend to look at these things as to what the player can do for the club. But this, there's a symbiotic thing going on here where also it's what can the club do for the player. And also... And both yeah. can really help each other for to sh- find something new here. For sure. So then there's him and then obviously Obama Young... No, I'm not doing. I'm not. I'm not doing Obama Young. I'm. I'm staying with Obama Yang. It's. It's hurting my head. <laughs> That's really brave. It, it, well, look. I mean, the thing is, otherwise we have to. We have to talk about Hector Bayarin, and you know, yeah, okay. I, I. I just think I. I but you can pull that one off with your. You know, your. My your, Spanish. My terrible, terrible <laughs> Spanish. Yeah, I could do, but I. It just. I felt uncomfortable all week after the podcast on Monday, so I'm just going back to Obama Yang now to make it easy. But I just want to. I mean, if you if you go backwards, I mean, I just remember um, Ron Atkinson always talking about Ajax in countries <laughs> of my youth, and thinking, oh God, you know, maybe we need to make that effort with Obama Young and Bayarin and Bayarin. Yeah, do we? Do we just sound like? I think, yeah, it's saying in public. You know what it is? Is, is when uh, people often you, you hear people talk about Barcelona and they go Barcelona. <laughs> <laughs> you know, hang on, but you can't have Barcelona without Valencia, and nobody says that. So I think we're we're just gonna we're just gonna stick with Obama Yang. But I just want to ask you about him very quickly, just right. in, in terms of Mkhitaryan. Uh, uh, today's press conference, Arsene Wenger did definitely go uh, go with the Obama Yang. So just throwing oh, that out he? there. Oh well, he's a he's a natural French speaker. I think it's just, you know, I, I don't want to sound like a, you know a French waiter Clouseau esque. I don't need to sound that way, you know. Anyway, um, the, the point I was going to make about him was um, uh, one of the questions that uh, to emerge from the press conference um, was the 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 version of that player that we saw on Saturday who Arsene Wenger stressed wasn't well, uh, hadn't, you know, had been a bit ill and also had his move and clearly hasn't played that much in with the winter break and having suspensions for Dortmund just before and after that. Um, you know, there's a sense that there's, you know, the, what, what you saw, you can up that a, a few notches for, for where the player wants to be. Uh, and I think uh, obviously it will help Arsenal enormously if he can, he can whiz through those, um, those gears and get to get to that place in time for Saturday twelve thirty, which might be asking a bit much. But I think he, he, on the back of a of an encouraging start, there was always a sense I think in the game against Everton that he, he wasn't quite ready. Um, he was ready enough to play that game, but I think that he will improve with a bit more time and a bit more getting used to everyone and a bit more getting fitter and sharper and more accustomed to things too. Mm, I mean, I think it it helps as well. You talk about bringing in Mkhitaryan and the club being good for him, but it's also got to be good for him to have Aubameyang in the team, someone he knows very well from Dortmund. And I think if you are going to completely tear up your attack and your attacking options, which is what Arsenal have done with the departures of Giroud, Walcott and Alexis, three players who scored so many goals, as you mentioned, you need players who can work together straight away 
and don't necessarily you don't have time for them to 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 um, feel each other out in January. You know, it's not like a summer where you can play a few preseason games. It's January, and Arsenal are in a position where they need to win games and they need to win a lot of games between now and May. So having those two um, with somebody with the intelligence of Ozil behind who can who can work with with them very easily, I think. Uh, should work well for us. Like you say, yeah, it's just think, one game. I think only the pity from that point of view is that is the cup tying situation, which, you know, in two important competitions mm. uh, in the, in the, in the near future, you're going to be without Mkhitaryan for one and without Aubameyang for the other one, <laughs> which is slightly frustrating when you're trying to get this new groove going quite quickly. Um, they did start very well um, against Everton. Obviously, a hat-trick of assists and a hat-trick for, for Aaron Ramsey. Um, Mesut Ozil was excellent as well. Alex Awobi was good, I thought. Uh, Aubameyang scored his goal. And afterwards, Arsene Wenger said something along the lines of, our game is based on a collective spirit. And you could see that return today. I'm paraphrasing slightly. People will think, obviously, he's talking about Alexis Sanchez, but uh, Alexis's individualism, uh, as much as it was brilliant, and I'm not trying to downplay anything he ever did for us or the way that he played, it can become a little restrictive, can't it, for a team to have one guy who is so obviously the, the one guy who wants to make things happen and tries to make things happen all the time, sometimes at the expense of the collective. Maybe. I mean, I think it's easy to be a bit revisionist. And I think over the three years that Alexis Sanchez was an Arsenal player, for the most part of it, he contributed massively mm. yeah. to the team. And I think those characteristics that he had that, you you know, you can argue can sometimes be at the expense of a kind of collective game, got Arsenal out of a lot of holes, won them, you know, cups, sometimes where he was the one who was responsible for the you know decisive goal in the cup cup game mm-hmm. um so i'm loath to say you know to try and say hurrah that's a, a fantastic thing that he's gone but i take your point that i think there's going to be potentially a slight shift in you know, he was an obvious focal point for the team yeah um and the focal points have to be different and i, and I use points in plural purposely because i th- imagine that there's a, a an idea that when everybody has clicked, that it's a team that tries to gear not just towards Ozil or Aubameyang or Mkhitaryan, but a kind of combination as being the key sort of forces that can propel the game forwards quickly, uh, inventively, cleverly, um, obviously with help of others around, you know, be it Jack Wilshire or, or Iwobi or Ramsey or whoever else is, is being selected around that front section of the team. Mm. But, it does seem like there's going to be an attempt for that to be a sort of shared thing. Um, and I think those three players will strike up a very natural understanding. And a lot of that's down to the fact that Ozil is exactly the type of of brain that will so instinctively understand and click into that wavelength that players like Mkhitaryan and Aubameyang have naturally already. Mm. 
Alexandra Lacazette is the man probably in January who hasn't looked upon our transfer business in <laughs> uh, as something that's really positive. Everyone else has, but it's clearly had an impact and will have an impact on him. Um, you know, with, with Giroud gone, um, he might have thought that, you know, I'm the guy now. And then in the end, Arsenal bring in Aubameyang and, and he's going to be the guy, certainly initially. But it's not to say that Lacazette is going to be completely and utterly uh, marginalized or unimportant. He's got the Europa League games to play in, uh, which are important, obviously, because it's a trophy for Arsenal. It's a potential way into the Champions League. And it's also a way for him to remind Arsene Wenger that there's a reason why he spent so much money on him last last summer. Well, the question is how much game time he's going to be getting. I think if that's restricted, you can. he's not had an easy time. And I think his body language in recent games has epitomised that he looks like a, a, a slightly frustrated figure, which is probably understandable because when he, you, know, you arrive, you come to a new club as a, with a new challenge at the age that he did where he was ready for something like that. Um, full of anticipation and excitement and hope and the start was fine and it has tailed off and become a difficult winter for him so he needs minutes to Mm. regain some of his own confidence to uh, relax I think a bit in his game because I've felt watching him sometimes lately that he looks like a player who's tense um who's not doing the things that would come naturally and instinctively because maybe he's overthinking or worrying or feeling a bit too much pressure or just irritated that things aren't going for him. Um, I definitely think to assess him on the basis of the last couple of months, that's not the real Lacazette. Sometimes a transfer, you know, with the best win in the world, just isn't quite the right fit. Yeah, Just might be that that's how this thing turns out. Mm. But it's very, very early to suggest that that's going to be the case. And if in these next few weeks of the season, he can take the minutes that he gets, whether that's off the bench, whether that's Europa, uh, or whether the way the team gets constructed fits him in as well, in a maybe wide position or or, or as a front two, if that ever gets an opportunity to get going. Yes, you'd like to think that he can see it as some sort of fresh start for himself as well. I think it'll help that he's got someone like Mkhitaryan as well as Ozil to try and find him because it's felt for such a while like you talk about wavelengths with the new guys that have come in, but the wavelength has seldom seen particularly um, in in tune yeah. for, for him. And I, I often have noticed him making what looks like the beginnings of a really promising run and he just doesn't get the ball. And it's like it's like he's invisible sometimes, like, like, like the other players just don't see him or don't see the run. Yeah. Um, so whether there's new options for him to be, you know, to make his presence felt and for others to really try to help him, um, I hope so because he – is still a very, very good player who, with a with a very good pe- pedigree, and I think to kind of brush him aside after six months because he got a new toy is would be a shame. Mm. Looking ahead to the weekend, uh, Arsene Wenger has moved to a back four in recent games. It didn't work at Swansea, but I don't, I'm not sure the result 
that night was because we played with a back four. Uh, it was down to indi- individual errors. The back four against Crystal Palace and against Everton obviously worked very well at home. But going to Wembley, going to play Tottenham in a North London derby, it feels to me, particularly as we did so well in the in the game at the Emirates against Tottenham with a back three, that it's more than likely he's going to revert to that formation this weekend because of the fact um, we are ostensibly away from home. I don't think it's the same as going to White Hart Lane by any means, but it's still an away game and our away form on the road has been quite iffy. He was asked at the press conference today, is this game a must-not-lose? And he said, well, it's more a game we want to win, a game we kind of have to win because of the the situation that we're in at this moment in time. So he's got to find the balance, doesn't he, between being defensively solid and still being able to to cause them problems. Yeah, and I think that that home game against Tottenham, which, as you rightly mentioned, was probably the best that Arsenal played, certainly in a in a you know elite match uh, rather than against opponents who have been a little bit less uh, worrying. If that's your blueprint, then it worked so well in the first game. Why wouldn't Arsenal try and do something similar? Um, but in a sense, it, the midfield I think is the critical area in this match. Yeah. Uh, if Aaron Ramsey wants to go off and try and get another hat trick there's quite a big worry that there's going to be some big old holes on that Wembley pitch uh-huh. in the middle of the park. Um, and perhaps one of the thing, part of the thinking behind going to a three is to try and have, try and pack the midfield slightly as well um, and shut off a bit of the supply lines and shut off a few of the options for Tottenham to kind of make runs um, and try and get at the, at the defence. But, Arson was very uh, he was asked about Harry Kane in the press conference as well and said that the you know the way of de- keeping him quiet and dealing with him is it's it's about the team performance it's not necessarily about individual defenders and I think he very much wants to gear or try to gear the team up to have that energy um, and determination that they showed throughout the game at home against Tottenham if they can try and replicate some of that as a collective that will probably help give Arsenal a platform to to try and um try and do better than they tend to do on the on the on the road. Yeah. But yeah. the brilliant thing is yes it's an away game, but don't think away game, think Wembley. And you know, if the club have a uh, a highly experienced and um well well paid psychologist, <laughs> um I'm sure all of us idiots out here can give a bit of free, free advice as think Wembley. Um but, you know, the amateur psychologist and all of us would, would do that. You'd be just showing lots and lots of footage of nine successive wins at that stadium. I mean, it, you know, it's obviously it's Tottenham's home for now, but it has come to feel like a second home for Arsenal over these last few years and a very good one at that. Yeah. And they have to, I think that's at the forefront of everybody's minds and certainly should be. It certainly gives it a different energy to going to White Hart Lane. All right. Well, look, if Arsenal do have a uh, highly paid sports psychologist, I might uh, posit that he's being paid a bit too much (laughs) or we're not getting good return on our investment. But uh, we'll keep fingers crossed. And Amy, we'll leave it there. Thanks a million.
Cheers, Andrew. Thank you very much indeed to Amy Lawrence. You can find her on Twitter at AmyLawrence71, at AmyLawrence71. That's for probably the two of you who aren't following her already. And if you're not, why not? Come on, get it sorted. Get it sorted. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Now, at the start of every season in our uh, Premier League preview episode, I chat with Ken Early of Second Captains. And at some point during the season, I like to uh, catch up with him again just to see how things are going. January was a bit mental, of course, because of everything that's uh, been going on with Arsenal. Players going in, players going out, players shaking it all about. Mesut Ozil in particular is one of those. And he's somebody we talk about his new contract at Arsenal, the new signings. But we also talk about the Premier League. We talk about uh, Maurizio Pochettino and Arsene Wenger comments about diving about diving itself. Why is it frowned upon as the biggest sin in football, practically? Can VAR do anything about it? What is the point of VAR? Who is VAR for? And is it going to make more problems than it actually solves? It's a long chat. You might want to get yourself a cup of tea or a cup of coffee, possibly a sandwich as well, and a biscuit. Who knows? Depends how hungry you are. Whatever you do, though, settle down and enjoy this chat with myself and Ken Early. Andrew, how are you? I'm all right. Um, we spoke to you at the start of the season, so we're not quite at the midway point, but we can get sort of two-thirds point of the season uh, review of what's gone on and where we think we are. How have you been enjoying this Premier League season so far? <sighs> could have been better, I think. You know, I mean, the, it could have been better if Manchester City just weren't so good. Yeah. Um, you know, I mean, they've just blown everyone away, so it's, it kind of feels... I mean, even praising the teams below them seems like, well, I mean, they don't look that good compared to no. what's actually being done at the top. I mean, and, and generally speaking, the entire... Sort of the top six has just deta- detached from the rest of the league. Um, I mean, some say that's really a new trend, but I think it's quite extreme this season. I mean, you can see it at the other end of the table where all the other teams have been pressed into like a five or six or seven point gap. Like yeah. the entire bottom half of the table could still get relegated easily. Yeah, it's weird, isn't it? You know, from yeah. probably 10th or 12th, you know, yeah. in the table. They're all like two wins off being bottom of the table. Yeah. Or, you, know, you know, well, it's, 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 it's harder to sink down because everyone has to win below. But yeah, um, yeah, I mean, any season where the relegation situation is more interesting than who's going to win the title or, or it's a champion, you know, Champions League qualification like which of these clubs gets to 
Yeah, yeah, and we've been told down the years that that's a you know bullshit thing anyway. Finishing the top four is like it's not really a thing. There's no such thing as a top four trophy. But uh, you know, well, there is, you know, there is. I mean, I, I just saw I, I saw Mohammed Salah uh, speaking to I believe Marka, right? Uh, and he mentions uh, growing up as a as a young boy, uh, he um, his first memories of football were watching the Champions League. Uh, players like Zinedine Zidane, great players like that. You right. Know? So I mean, that is the trophy, I suppose. I mean, in the sense of of of, uh, of getting to play in a competition which people are paying attention to, and therefore being a team that exists in the minds of all the young future Mohamed Salahs, I guess is worth something. You know? I you no know, look, I never had an issue with it. You know, people, I suppose. Uh, including Arsenal fans I think took a bit of like uh, a negative view of finishing in the top four as if this was somehow boring but that's because the same thing kept happening to Arsenal yeah I mean, but I mean it it's not a nightmare. bad thing in itself to finish in the top four no uh, I mean it used to be the, the case that it was like financially crucial and now yeah, it's, it's like not. such a small percentage of your over. well it's relatively much less important from the strictly financial perspective than it used to be mm. but it's still important from the point of view of do you want to be a top club yeah. so um, so yeah I mean I guess that always is a little bit interesting but um, you would rather have a title race yeah and there isn't one City have there been there used to be one it's over pretty fast yeah um, what have you made of City beyond sort of looking on admirably at the way they play football and, and how they play football um is it momentum, or are they just that good, or that much better than everybody else? Well, they they have been, although there's a lot of bits falling off them now. So I wonder if you know, I mean, in terms of the injuries, and um, they've had probably obviously David Silva has had this these problems um, in his personal life, which have kept him from playing uh, a lot. Uh, Sane now injured, Gabriel Jesus injured. I mean, these are really good players. Mm. Uh, and they were all among their key players. So now they've, and I, I see Kevin De Bruyne was talking about being tired. Um, you know, you play, you feel great for 10 games, you feel okay for 10 games, and then you feel shit. Yeah. And so he's well into the... Feeling shit part of in the SBN now. Like, <laughs> so he's like, I mean, uh, they have been, I think they have been brilliant. Uh, I mean, the question always then arises, I mean... Uh, <laughs> Over the transfer, you know, when they didn't, when they tried and failed to sign Mares, I did think they were beginning to play into the narrative of, oh, it's like as Mourinho has it, you know, it's a state. You know, it's not a club, it's a state. Uh, and the kind of money that they were spending just to just to fill, just to temporarily plug gaps, you know, it, it was a bit sort of dispiriting. I mean, you get away from the transfer window, you can kind of forget about what City really are, you know, what they... You know, like they're 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 like a, a soft power exercise, you know, on behalf of. Uh, um, do you want me to say that again? Yeah. That no, no, no. It's fine. It's just my stupid laptop here. You know. Yeah. Um, yeah. Just in terms of the way that they're operated and what what's made them what they are. Yeah. They. Um, well, I mean, they're they're like a kind of a thing to. They're a device to normalize um, the idea of these. Uh, extremely wealthy royalty from you know mm. undemocratic Gulf states. You know just the idea that when you uh, when you hear the name Sheikh Mansour, when you hear of the Abu Dhabi royal family, you know you're thinking of Kevin De Bruyne and Raheem Sterling. Yeah. You know, so you just sort of, I mean, like Roman Abramovich. You know the kind of 
Yeah. Cuddly. Or not cuddly, but like... Definitely not cuddly. But, you yeah. know, but, but familiar. Familiar oligarch. Like the sort of, the benignly, somewhat bored smile of the, the benign... It's a, there's a veneer of, of public Robert relations Gap. in front of it all, isn't there? I mean, that's what it is. Yeah, the man is, is you know, robber baron. I mean, a robber, robber baron on a historic scale but like everybody sort of just knows him as that guy kind of looking down with faintly bored expression from his box at Chelsea and it's just not really it's he's familiarised and I suppose that's yeah you know it's the city are, are aiming to do the same thing on behalf of these people who own them yeah and all across the world of course because they have their their various franchises in New York, in in Melbourne, mm. so they're spreading they're spreading their wings. I mean, the great sporting rivalry in Europe could be uh, Abu Dhabi against Qatar. That is PSG what it is. versus Manchester City. Yeah, that's what that's what it is. Mm. Um, yeah, it's, <laughs> it's a little bit grim. It is, uh, but th- those are the mental gymnastics you have to go through, or football fans have to go through as well. Uh, yeah. You know, in order to, uh, I guess, you support your club and your team. Mm-hmm. And you want to see them perform on the pitch, but I guess it, it will become increasingly difficult to separate ownership from. Well, we are completely getting away from from the old-fashioned idea of what a club is that we would have sort of grown up with. I guess um, you know the best example of it is like the Lisbon Lions, like they're like the most perfect example of an old old style, you know, first wave football club. Sure. Uh, like everyone born within stone's yeah. throw of, of uh, Celtic. It's like the team is literally a genetic extension of the crowd. Like, you know, we, they are, yeah. they're all, these guys are our cousins, our, you know, our Sons nephews. Sons and brothers, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. This is, we, they, it's like, uh, they they are a part of us. They literally are us. Yeah. Uh, and, I mean, that's no longer the way that it is. Uh, I mean, Platini used to go on about this when he was president of UEFA, like, as you know, we need to sort of get back to that. And you're like, how are you going to do that? Like, <laughs> it's just, you can't go back. Yeah. You know, it's just, this is the this is the way it is now. And uh, uh, and instead, you've got, like, Manchester, thanks, Sheikh Mansour, uh, on a, you know, banner across the ground. Mm. And, um, okay, at least the football is of a higher standard, I guess. That's the trade-off. Yeah. Sell your soul and nobody really cares about that. No, I get no. They don't. They don't because there's been an acceptance that it, it is in some ways like an arms race, isn't it? Mm. That in order to keep up, you've got to you've got to go this way. You've got to. Uh, well, if you don't, you lose the teams who do. Yeah. So yeah, it's uh, it's something that's it's going to have to. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to talk to you a bit about Maurizio Pochettino and some comments that he made this week about diving and in relation to what happened last weekend in the Liverpool Tottenham game uh, you spoke about it on on the podcast this week uh, on Second Captains which people can subscribe to um, for only a five or a month and it's well worth it um, the Harry Kane one I want to talk about first because I disagree with you on this. You think you, it was a dive? I think it's a dive. And it's one of my pet peeves in football is the is the the striker who knocks the ball past the goalkeeper and then falls into the goalkeeper mm. and leaves a leg. And mm. people say, well, there's contact. Or the goalkeeper took him out. When clearly the what made the, the, the striker fall is 
the striker, not the goalkeeper. It wasn't the contact from the goalkeeper that made him fall. Those ones in particular, I think... That what I what find made those him fall really, was the side of the ball running away over the goal line. Well, that's what... Arsene talked about that at his press conference today. He said, like, when I came to England first, that wasn't always a penalty. It wasn't often a penalty, in fact, I think is what he said. But now, when you see a striker and he pushes the ball away from goal, I think he said the only resource he has is to fall down or is to mm. is to dive and leave the leg to make the contact. Mm, and he yeah. said, for me, that's that's not a penalty. What did he say when Robert Perez invented it? Well, th- I, there's another one. I, I don't think... Uh, it was against Portsmouth, wasn't it? It was against Portsmouth where he hung a leg out, yeah. and it was. It was that the that penalty way. that they tried to do the 1-2? No, that was okay. against Manchester City. Okay. But, but I, you know, I think that's another thing. I think Perez is... Uh, has a reputation of being somebody who who dived a lot in his career, and I don't think that's the case. He had that one incident where it happened. But he invented the thing that you're talking about. I don't think he invented that. I think that's something that's been in the game for a long time, no? Yeah, well, I'm sure it has, definitely. But he yeah. he's the player in the Premier League I remember most... Like, if, 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 if you were to write a textbook entry on what you're talking about here, it would feature Robert Perez, a series of photographs of him putting out that... Left leg, wasn't it? Just yeah, but that wasn't even the goalkeeper. I think it was a defender. It was a defender, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was a defender, but it, but it was like that, oh, I can't, you know, that's that's nasty. You know, he's. I see what, he, I see what you've done there, Robert, and I don't like it. I mean, did Harry Kane do that? I, mean, I don't know if he had to try as hard. You know, it was just... No, because he's got the momentum of a goalkeeper coming and he why, can just fall. Why does fall a goalkeeper and, do that? You Like, I mean, uh, what, how hard is it going to be for Harry Kane to score here if... You know, it's it's not. What do you should goalkeeper just stand up like a five a side keeper and try to save with his feet? I but don't know. But like the the whole idea of, of, of rushing and, and throwing yourself at the legs of the striker, it's gonna be a penalty. Like what are you doing? Yeah. Unless, but you, should, not- unless you can get definitely get there. And and how many times do you see them not like they just run out and it's like, What are you doing? why? Like I mean he still has to score past you. It's not that easy. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, Carius did do one thing in that game, which I think goalkeepers should do more, which is stand in the middle on a penalty. Yeah, you know, I mean, how many penalties do you see go down the middle? Mm-hmm. I mean, just sta- just stand in the middle. But the keepers then is runs the risk of being accused of not trying. Doesn't matter. No, I get it. I mean, I I can see the logic to that, and I've uh, uh, Petr Cech is on a run of not saving any penalties for it's Arsenal amazing. for a long time. It's incredible. But you know, I think the bigger issue is Arsenal giving away penalties. Yeah. But I think one. He did actually stand in the middle. Mm. People were saying, he goes this way, the penalty goes that way, he goes that way, the penalty goes this way. Why doesn't he just stand in the middle? And he stood there for one of them, and so the guy just put it in the corner, and people <laughs> went, why didn't he fucking move? So keepers are on a, a hiding to nothing in that regard. But mm. but with regards to Pochettino, he talked about um, in, in football, you know, the job is to, to trick your opponent. Mm. Um, and you made the point on the podcast that it's not really the case when it comes to diving. You're not tricking your opponent. Mm. You're tricking the referee, yeah. which is, I think, absolutely spot on. But in the the whole spectrum of things that footballers do that are contrary to the rules of the game, diving has a very special significance, I think. Yeah. Um, what did you call it? The difference between... Um, a guy hacking down a, a a guy in the center circle to prevent a break. Yeah. What did you call it? An transaction. Honest, an honest transaction. Yeah. It's like, oh, okay. Yeah. In order to stop the situation, I need to take a yellow card. Yeah. Therefore, that's what the rules. And say. you know what? I, li- I, I like that. I mm. like that element of cynicism 
Um, it's something that has really annoyed me about Arsenal down the years. Uh, we haven't had players who will take that yellow card, who will pull the shirt, who will do... Who was it? Was it Herrera uh, in a couple of years ago against Liverpool? I think he had hold of Firmino's shirt. Yeah. And he just stood there basically holding his yeah. shirt. It was like a cartoon, yeah, yeah, basically. Yeah, I remember that. Yeah. Um, that, kind of, that kind of cynicism, I like it. Yeah. And I know in you've got to jump through some mental hoops to get there that, okay, why do you like that? But you condemn diving. uh, And everybody seems to condemn diving. And for me, it feels like uh, to try and make an equivalence of real life, like diving is like uh, a telltale. Yeah. It's like being a telltale. Nobody likes a telltale. Yeah. Yeah. But it's, I think the reason is that, First of all, the consequences of diving are often quite extreme, like in terms of one team often gets a penalty that it doesn't deserve. Yeah. Um, or, you know, you've seen players being sent off for it. Not not often unjustly. Uh, Victor Moses got sent off in the FA Cup final. Did Roy Keane get sent off for diving years ago? Did against, he? Against Palace, didn't he? Or did he get blocked against Blackburn in one of these games in Ring? I can't remember. He definitely got he definitely got a booking for trying to win a penalty with like a you can imagine the kind of dive Roy mm. Keane would do you know <laughs> <laughs> just, industrial just not great like, yeah. dives like a fridge like you know yeah, yeah. but uh, so th- so you got extreme consequences which means that, that it's a big point and it's a thing everyone can remember about the game see this is how it's different from say you know all the fouling that happens at a corner. When everyone is fouling everyone, all all the defenders are all, every defender has to have his, you know, one sort of arm around the throat of a... Of an a, attack, you know, or, or he's not doing his shots. job. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What's yeah. He, you know, what's he, who's he picking up? So there's all this fouling that goes on, and that could be equally consequential in terms of stopping a team from scoring, or sometimes a team scoring, like, you know, the old Chelsea, John Terry... Block off. Against Barcelona. Remember, I can't, it was probably Ricardo Carvalho who was blocking goalkeeper. It usually was. Yeah. But Terry is able to head it in. So that's a huge thing. But the problem, the thing is, no one sees it. No one sees it at the time. It's not like everyone is outraged by it. Yeah. It's uh, and it do, and the consequence isn't often immediately obvious in the way that it is when a, penalty, a referee blows a whistle and points to the penalty spot for a penalty that is actually a dive. Yeah. And he's somehow the only person who doesn't know this. You know. So so all there's there's loads of cheating that happens, which isn't which is potential, which is maybe just as bad and and just as dishonest, but isn't as obvious. And doesn't matter as much as diving, which is why people get angry. And there's also the fact that if you dive, like you're you're inventing, like you're someone's being convicted of a crime they didn't commit. Like yeah, so that's the, <laughs> there's an injustice, there's, a real there injustice. injustice. Whereas, yeah. whereas in the case of the yellow card in midfield, it's like okay, it's you know, obvious, yeah. rights. You yeah. know, I'll take my punishment. I've served my time. Now I'm a new man. I come back <laughs> to the game, but I better not get booked again. Like so, so uh, I think that's kind of where it, why it has a special. And also the fact that it used to be just a thing that foreigners would get for. I mean, you don't get as much of that anymore, really, as you used to. Um, just in terms of foreign players do this, foreign players do that. Well, I mean, Ar- 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 this morning says, yeah, it used to be a thing that it was foreign players that mm. did the diving, and now I think English players are yeah. are the masters at it. Yeah, and yeah. Delhi Ali, for example, is uh, a player who's been booked more times for simulation than anybody else yeah. over the last couple of seasons. I think previous to that, it was Gareth Bale. Mm. Who yeah. was who was uh, a very very um, keen proponent of the art of of diving, yeah. but it's always been a dirty thing in football. I remember years ago, I can't remember. I would have been a kid, 
9 or 10 or something and reading some somebody somewhere condemn Ozzy Ardiles as a diver. I didn't quite understand what it meant back then. I was going, mm. what, what, is what, that? Is what, that? what does that mean? In, in football terms, obviously you learn, but, um, you know, it goes back, it goes back that far. Was it Franny Lee, I think, was a player? Franny Lee is, 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 is primarily famous for diving. Yeah. And that windmilling fight against Norman Hunter, where he, he, he literally windmilled his fists. <laughs> but, but, you know, Franny Lee won the title. You know, was it, was it, was he top scorer in the league? But I think a lot of the goals were penalties from, uh, were from penalties that he'd illegally or cheatingly won for yeah. Manchester City. But it is kind of funny that a, play, that a player who scarcely anybody who watches football these days can remember seeing yeah. <laughs> is famous for diving like 40 years later. Yeah. Good old fashioned um, so maybe player, it, yeah. Maybe it was. I mean, I don't know why that reputation particularly attached itself to Franny Lee. Maybe he just did do it much more than everybody else back then. Maybe he played for the wrong Manchester team. I don't know. I mean, sorry, that's 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 a modern attitude seeping into my. I don't know if the atmosphere in Manchester was quite as fevered as in 1968 as it is now in terms of everyone thinking that you know the other Maybe team he controls got, the media. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, look, let's not go down the media conspiracy <laughs> theories. Yeah. Um, but I mean, maybe it, it was a case of he got caught very obviously once, and yeah. uh, you know it was something that that stuck to him. But it's it's not a new thing. No. It's not a new thing in the game. No, I mean, nobody, you know, Lineker didn't Lineker. No, but Lineker probably didn't, did he? He probably didn't, no. Maybe no, he probably did. He's a striker. I mean, never booked. It's a bit weird. It's yeah. a bit strange. Like, how did he manage to do that? Yeah. That's really weird, actually, the more you think about it. I think it. Alan Smith only had one really? yellow card. Well, that's really weird, yeah. considering he was a kind of a striker who would jump a good bit with defenders. And yeah. You imagine he must have elbowed a few people. Yeah, maybe I could be completely wrong on that, but you know, yeah. cer- certainly Lineker. Um, but you know, it's up there. I think in in the football pantheon of offences, where you know, simulation uh, is something that nobody uh, wants to see from their team or or anything else. But you know, feigning injury, for example, overstating an injury, rolling around, you know, clutching your face, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. and the introduction of cameras from every angle hasn't diminished uh, players' um, ability to do this or their desire to do it. They will still do it if they get the chance. Despite the fact this season there have been rules introduced which say if you are seen to have conned the referee, you know, you're you're liable for a ban. But if you don't, if you don't, a lot of managers will will be like, what's wrong with you? Don't you want us to win? Mm. You know? I mean, Mourinho certainly does. I remember Duff to, to, talking to Damien Duff before about that, and he's like, "Like you've got to, you've got to learn how to do this. Like you got to learn how to, how to tumble. Like he wants you to go down. Well, I mean, yeah. yeah in, well, in the if, there's no point in in being the the white knight. Is 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 very much Mourinho's attitude. I mean, you can, you know, nice guys finish last. Sure. You know, if 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 you think we can get a penalty, then you know, take the penalty. I mean, Damien Duff did that for Ireland in the World Cup. That was before he he'd fallen under the influence of Mourinho. I mean, it was in his it was in his bones. I was I was at that match. It happened right in front of me, and I swear to God, I thought it was a foul. It was only watching it, you know, later that I realised, oh, Duff's yeah, Duff's really uh, bought one there. Well, I mean, <laughs> did that, I care? No, that, not, not particularly. <laughs> not not particularly. Yeah. I mean, it, it, but it's the same way. I mean, if if you're a fan of a of a team and your player dives, you will pretend that it wasn't a dive. Like you will find a reason to go. Was it really a dive, though? Yeah. You know, I mean, I, was it? Uh, 
you know, this this incidents you can remember. I don't know if, if you can remember any particularly controversial Arsenal penalties. I'm sure you thought, well, no, there is actually. There, there was one a couple of years ago, actually, uh, where we played West Brom at home. Mm. And it was one of those where Santi Cazorla had the ball in the box. Santi Cazorla is not somebody that anybody would associate with diving. Mm. But he had the ball in the box. And the defender came in. It was one of those where he started to take a, a swipe and then stopped, but Cazorla kind of jumped up in the air mm. and we got a penalty. Mm. It was a dive. Well, I mean, what's he, what's he meant to do there? He's got to he get like, out of the way. He's just he protecting just himself. Is he just going to and get himself injured? Is well, that that's, the, that's part of the justification. So that's what all the other fans are saying. Yeah. I mean, think, think of it. Remember the Champions League final, the Liverpool-Milan Champions League final? Mm. I mean, in all the excitement... Can, did anyone remember to see that the foul on Stephen Jarrod? Where did it happen? I mean, I remember Stephen Jarrod f- collapsing, like s- sprawling forward. Oh no! <laughs> it was one of the. It was a, it was a real uh, Elias in platoon type penalty. It yeah. was a real like falling falling on his knees with the arms above his head, and it was Gattuso supposedly. Gattuso probably did give him a little bit of a push, but it is, I have to say, very difficult to see the foul when you look. Back at sure. The it's like, sure. where, where exactly did this happen? You know, it's kind of happened very fast. It's a penalty. I don't, I don't, I don't recall the dive of Istanbul entering folklore. You know, I don't. It's not even like, uh, you know, the Liverpool fans in a Pochettino kind of way. Yeah, we're applauding Steven Gerrard's cunning for winning that penalty at a key moment. You know, and to make it three all or whatever. It's just the dive. You know, if if the dive goes in your favor, it's like you didn't see the dive. I mean. <sighs> One of the things that strikes me is that there are, there's always a justification for a penalty in pretty much every circumstance. Every time it happens, there's contact. Whether or not, the, you know, a guy gets, for example, a guy gets kicked in the arse and he falls backwards. No, hang on, what, what's going on there? Uh, hand on the shoulder, the guy goes down. Like a ha- literally just a hand on the shoulder. And people say, well, there was contact. Mm. Well, hang on a minute. This guy's six foot three and, you know, 14 stone. And a guy put his hand on his shoulder. If you do that to a guy in the street, he doesn't fall down. No. It's not enough to make him fall down. But, I mean, it, it, is there any way of cleaning it up? Is there any way of making penalties more fair? Or do we just have to accept that every time there's any hint of contact in and around the penalty box uh, to go all uh, Andy Townsend on it that it is going to be a penalty and to make our own lives easier we should just accept that well you can't the problem is that you can't like say for instance I see sometimes people say oh but diving is so bad there should be red cards for diving but you can't give someone a red card for diving well you can give someone a second yellow card for diving and send them off sure yeah but I think the idea of a straight red card for diving is way too harsh because the risk of of a wrongful conviction is too high. Like, what if the guy didn't dive? You've sent him off, like, for something he didn't do at all, like a completely imaginary offence. Like, how often does that really happen? But, but I mean, was this not why the, the, the video review system was introduced this year, mm. where they could re- or retroactively or retrospectively look at incidents like this and make a decision mm. about whether or not it was uh, an attempt by the player to deceive the referee. Yeah. I think that was the the thing. It's not just diving. It, it could be, for example, a guy who, you know, swing an arm back and it hits you in the chest and he goes down clutching his face. I, I assume it's supposed to work for things like that as well. Yeah, yeah. But it's hard to get people to agree about what's a dive and what's not and what's simulation and what's not. Well, it's very, it's very difficult to tell. It, it can be difficult even when you have 
footage to establish what did or did not physically have the power to put a player down, yeah. given you know how fast they were running or the angles that they were at, which is why contact gets used as like a proxy for, okay, that was a foul or that wasn't a foul. Like if you touch them, then maybe it was a foul. You know, it's like, so so recent penalties like Lovren's one against uh, Everton, Calvert-Lewin, yeah. Everton, where, you know, is, is that a penalty? I thought it was a penalty. I mean, it's like Calvert-Lewin is not going to really get pushed over by that, but he did get pushed in the back. It looked like he fell in the right direction <laughs> you know and I mean 7.5 like, for artistic merit yeah, yeah he's like I'm being fouled here so you have to given the, that that it is it's hard to actually know objectively what was and wasn't a foul you have to use some kind of a the agreed on thing is basically was was the player touched yeah I uh, I mean, and the defender can sometimes get away with that if he gets if he gets if he touches the ball first. Yeah, you know what I mean. So that's how you. That's kind of just how you have to simplify a complicated situation. Video assistant referees VAR is being held up as something that might um, might get, uh, help referees get more decisions right, particularly when it comes to things like contentious penalties. Hmm. Do you have any faith that that will be the case? If and when VAR is introduced into the Premier League on a, a on a consistent basis, that uh, let's say the the Tottenham Liverpool game with the two penalties that were awarded in that, uh, there seemed to be great confusion between the officials uh, on the pitch on the day. Mm. I think um, John Moss even asked the Did fourth official TV? to get anything from TV. I mean, come on. I mean, and look. I, I feel like there's perhaps a bit too much focus now on referees and their decision making and I'll hold my hands up and say you know I've been guilty of going to town on a referee when a decision goes against you as a fan of course you're you're unhappy about that and outraged about that um but I it feels more and more like they're becoming they always were kind of pantomime villains in football because you know the referee's a wanker and who's the wanker in the black and that goes yeah. that goes on but um, this sort of search for absolute precision in decision making yeah. is only going to cause problems. So if we get VAR or VAR, I don't know what way it should be. I don't know. They say I think they say VAR in Germany. Um, uh, I don't know. Well, they are our masters, so we'll say <laughs> VAR here then. Um, if they do introduce VAR, are we going to see decisions like those two at Tottenham or at the in the Liverpool Tottenham game? got right or right to the satisfaction of most people who are watching well the problem is it's like you're going to get one of those it's like one of those kind of you know philosophical paradoxes you know like the what's the one where where it's like how can anything get from point A to point B because in order to get from point A to point B first of all you have to go halfway and then halfway and then halfway and then halfway of the, of the remaining sure, sure. until eventually it's like well how do I ever get there um, it's kind of one of those it's like it's impossible to, to actually get it right so you get you end up these things end up becoming like how many angels on the head of a pin type of conversations I mean did you see for instance the Super Bowl I didn't because it was well, on too late well it was I was watching I was. I mean I'm, I'm not usually into it so this may, maybe this is why it's kind of a surprise to me to you know this is, some, this is obvious to anyone who watches NFL I guess but uh Every you know, every score is being scrutinized like for in, in a variety of different ways. I mean, there was one particularly crucial score, which was 
as I watched it in real time, and I'm again, I'm somebody who knows very little about American football. I would watch one match a year, if that. But so what happened was this Eagles guy, um, Eagles against Patriots, Eagles guy catches the ball, runs past the tackle, and sort of uh, plants the ball over the line in a kind of a glorious, uh, like a try, like a you know, a, yeah. a, the kind of a, a jumping try that you do when there was no one near you to yeah, show yeah, off. Yeah, yeah. That, that sort of way almost. Jumping out of a tackle, and, and it was like the most obvious try slash touchdown you've, you've ever seen. It was like, well, there you go. That's right up here there in New England. But then it was like, then, then there was this sort of um, very protracted uh, analysis of of whether and I was kind of looking at it scratching my head going What's, what could possibly be wrong with this I don't understand and then listening to the commentary I'm like okay so the issue that's being debated here is whether this guy who's who scored the touchdown it's not a deba- it's not a debate that he got the touchdown or that he got the ball down or that he had control of the ball or any of those types of things it's whether he was a receiver or a runner at the time when he did this yeah, yeah, yeah. You, you, you've kind of looked at me. I don't really. It, it, it was just such a kind of Jesuitical distinction. You know, it's like, is he is he in receiver mode or runner mode? Runner mode? Because in one of these situations, this is an illegal try, and the other situation, it's okay. Yeah. And then, and what you had was the commentators going, "Oh no, I don't know how they can give this," and then it's given. You know, so it's like, and that happened a couple of times. And another couple of the scores, it was like you, you had this disagreement between the pundits they had on TV, and then the decision that was given by the referees in the game who are who are actually judging the video evidence. Yeah. So people who know a lot about it are looking at the same thing, coming to different conclusions. You had the same thing with this match at Anfield, where you had Dermot Gallagher on Sky afterwards saying, "Oh, there were both penalties," and then you had Mark Clattenburg in the Times the next day saying, "Neither of them were penalties. Neither of them should have been given." And these are both guys, both, you know, qualified referees, experienced referees who have had ample opportunity to look at all of the evidence in like in cold blood, yeah. you know, not, not sort of rushing to get a decision and they can't agree. So <laughs> it's like, is this, I mean, it's the subjectivity of how you interpret the rules or well, how it, you interpret the situation. Everything, it turns out, is a little bit illegal. Like, it, it, it turns out that most of the points in American football history should not have been allowed. Based on what we now see, with every time there's a touchdown, there's something that is arguably illegal about it. I think back to all of the years before this and can, can only conclude most of those uh, points should have been chalked off the board, right? There, there, was, <laughs> there, were, there were definitely, there was definitely fouls involved. And the same may be true of... Football. I mean, we. This is kind of. You, 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 we have always seen the, the phenomenon whereby, typically, you know, partisan groups. One one bunch of fans thinks the player has dived clearly, and one bunch of fans thinks the player has clearly been taken down. Yeah. And they're looking at the same thing, but they're coming to different conclusions. And you can say, well, maybe that's because they're, you know, of their partisan affiliation. But actually, I mean, it is because of their partisan affiliation. But also, it's because these things are always open to interpretation. And you yeah. may not, you don't need to come at it with a partisan affiliation to see it one way. It's like a duck-rabbit thing, you know, those, those <laughs> yeah, optical yeah. illusions. You just happen to see it one way. And then, I mean, I'm sure you've noticed this yourself if you look at a replay of something and you're looking for one particular thing about the replay that you don't notice another really obvious thing. Like you're looking to see, did this player trip this player and you don't notice him elbowing him in the face at the same time? You know, that, that sort of thing. So it just seems as though 
given given these given the fact that all these situations can be seen in different ways, that I'm not sure how much more just anyone is ultimately going to feel these decisions are. People will still disagree with them. Like ref, people will disagree. Referees will disagree about whether the VAR decision was the right decision. Yeah. They, they actually released some figures on it in, in um, Germany and Italy um, at the kind of, because they've been using it in the league all season. Yeah. So at the halfway point, they both released some some data. And I think the figures were that in Germany, there had been 48 decisions changed because of VAR recommendations, 48 refereeing decisions changed, of which 37 were correct. Right. <laughs> and you're like, but hang on, they should all be correct. Yeah, but they can't, they can't all, it basically, I mean, how do you even determine whether they were correct? Well, I suppose you, you review it by even more referees, like this endlessly recurring yeah. panels, like ever-expanding panels of referees. But they, they concluded there were only 11 mistakes made by the VAR out of 48 times they told the referee to change the decision. Yeah. So that's pretty good, right? And you're like, no, this, is, this isn't that good. I mean, a, a, dis- a wrong decision made by VAR is a thousand times more annoying than a wrong decision made, made by, by a referee, a referee, in referee real who, time. Can, who can't see what's going on. Exactly. And in Italy, it was a similar kind of story, like a, a, around about 20 to 25% error rate they concluded having reviewed all the VAR decisions. So so who is it for? Who is who is video uh, VAR, who is it for? Is it for fans? Is it to help referees? Is it to to make the game more equitable to ensure that there's fairness in decisions? Is it now just simply part of the entertainment of football that it adds another layer to the discussion points? Because it seems one of the common themes of this season, to me anyway, and maybe it's a consequence of Man City being so far out in front that there isn't as much to focus on in terms of the excitement of a title race, but it seems there's more and more focus on referees' decisions. Have they got this right? Have they got that right? The controversy of wrong decisions, of questionable decisions, because... Like you say, on one side, there's a group of fans going, what the fuck, he dived, this is an outrage, this is a disgrace. And the other side, there's a group of fans who are going, well, you know, it all evens up over the course of a season. (laughs) You know, sometimes they go for you and sometimes they don't. But when they go against you, the same group of fans are going, this is an outrage, we've got to get, you know. Um, And and increasingly, um, you're seeing... Certainly, I don't know whether it's true of of everybody else, but I can see it on Arsenal Twitter, which I'm obviously very much involved in. The growing belief that there is a conspiracy. The game is right. That the game is uh, somehow fixed, that officials are um, not just incompetent, but corrupt. Mm. And... I, I'm not sure it's healthy for football that this is gaining so much traction. No, it's really it's not. Um, it's really not. I mean that that game, the Liverpool Tottenham game, is such a good example of it. You know, I mean, I think the 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 linesman Eddie Smart, who had awarded the, well, kind of was involved in both penalties, had a, a like a tiny, almost imperceptible sort of, you know. Uh, like a, a tiny little fist pump, yeah. pump of the air. I saw that. Tiny. Like, you know, is, is that because he's a Spurs fan who can't contain it? I, I strongly doubt that. If he was a Tottenham, if he was like a, a sleeper agent for Tottenham, that's the last thing he'd be doing. He's just sort of happy at getting a decision right. I remember it happened, maybe it was even Dermot Gallagher. The referee at... It was Mike Dean, I think. At a, at a, it was a, a Leeds, a Liverpool against Leeds game oh, right. from, 
from 16 or 17 years ago. Oh, then it wasn't Mike Dean. And what then. the referee had done was allow a, a, a play on mm. uh, instead of a foul. The ball came to Patrick Berger, who scored from a long distance. And the referee like gave a little punch of the air like as though to say yes good to see well there was I, one with Mike Dean did that as well there was definitely a Mike Dean one good but what he he's he's saying yes good decision by me I'm glad that 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 piece of enlightened refereeing worked out he's not saying yes you well know, done Patrick that Berger. brings my 3-1 that brings in my accumulator you know <laughs> that's not what he's that, at least that's what what I think because yeah. you know I mean how how likely is it that all these guys could get together and work together you know in some like if they're as incompetent as people think, how yeah. can they rig a, a boobs, vast like. conspiracy, <laughs> uh, you know, to to stop Arsenal from winning the title? Like I think, you know, like any fan, I think we've been on the wrong end of some decisions, you know, this season which have been annoying and infuriating. But I don't think that the reason Arsenal haven't won the title since two thousand and four is the the PGMOL sitting down and going now. But we can chalk Arsenal off the Yeah, list. absolutely. They're not winning it this season. Mm. We're going to make sure that we give them just enough wrong decisions to help the opposition in various games yeah. to ensure that they're not going to win. That You know, it doesn't, it doesn't work like that. Mm. But uh, it is certainly a, a recurring theme and a growing theme within uh, the game this season that there's all this focus. If you're asking who is it for, though, I mean, like, it's a difficult question to answer. I mean... The, what they found, uh, what they found with in Italy and Germany, is that the referee has started to use it really much as a crutch. Like, you, you know, it's supposed to be that the VAR only gets involved where there's obviously a problem. Yeah, but like the problem is there isn't obviously a problem most of the time, or like someone might. Who spot decides a problem. Yeah. where what an obvious problem is? The re- it's it's certainly a situation where the referee hasn't hasn't noticed any problem. That, that by definition, you're starting with that like the referee hasn't noticed what's clearly and obviously wrong with the decision should it only be when a referee is unsure of a decision like if a player goes well, down in the, the box and he's like uh, I'm not sure if he dived or if it's a penalty that's, that's the problem that's the problem once the referee knows that he can ask for a replay he's never sure of anything anymore he's mm. never sure of anything ever again I mean previously he had to make a decision because it was like okay it's it's something happened now we need your decision because you're the only person who can give one <clears throat> so you have to give it um, now it's like oh I'm not sure you know can we have a look at that again yeah and so they're going to the viewer all the time because they don't want to with this option available to them they don't want to then be the guy who not only got it wrong but refused to heed the calls to to, to get it right. Yeah. The guy who could have got it right, but got it wrong anyway. Yeah. You know what I mean? <laughs> Nobody wants to be that guy. Yeah. So, so, so it's, it's kind of more and more. It's like, the, the reason that it's happening is because of the cameras. Like, the, you know, an example of it is like the 1986 World Cup. We think that TV has been in football for a long time. But the camera quality at the 1986 World Cup was of such a standard that there are still plenty of people who like kind of moon landing deniers. There are plenty of people who I know what you're going to say here. What the Maradona goal? They think Terry Butcher Terry scored. Butcher yeah. yeah, yeah. They think Terry Butcher scored this goal, and when you look at it, you can see why they think that. There, all, there was actually an angle that came out that showed. Uh, showed he couldn't have really scored it uh, more recently, <laughs> like a, a, an, an undiscovered <laughs> angle from behind the goal or whatever, but. You know, the, the, that sort of thing obviously wouldn't happen now. That you've got like super slow you've got like 4K HD. You can see exactly whose toe touches the ball at exactly with yeah. microsecond. You know, and that 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 ability to zoom in 
Like, the more you zoom in, the more stuff you notice. Like, you get into an entirely different world, you know, once you start zooming in on on tiny details. Yeah. This is this is what Pochettino was saying is the is his problem with it. Like, he wants it to, to remain at the sort of human scale, the scale of human perception, where we can all just run around and play the game and try to con each other or whatever. Yeah. But... The, the cameras are, are bringing it down to the sort of insect scale. It's like, well, what about this tiny detail? Like, what, what about this telling touch? Like the, the fractional offside with the lamella thing, you know, like the lamella penalty against... Uh, oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, even, I suppose, what I'm saying is being even delighted by the fact that the Vir- Virgil van Dijk kicking lamella in the back, like, so obviously, was one particular angle of, of it was being shown, well, he, he didn't kick him, he was pulled out. And you're like, no, his, you can see their legs coming. Like, how... How can you not see this? Mm. No, it's amazing. The, the capacity for delusion is astonishing, but it's like everybody's got it. So, <laughs> and I don't. It's not going. It's not going anywhere any anytime soon. So, no. yeah, yeah. Problem. Something that football is uh, going to have to deal with, I guess. Let's talk Arsenal very quickly. Um, a couple of things. Mesut Ozil signed a new contract with Arsenal, and it's rare when a player gets to the final five months more or less of their contract certainly a player of the the uh, profile of Mesut Ozil who could have gone anywhere he wanted really on a Bosman in the summer and probably made more money than he's going to make at Arsenal despite you, the fact do we know how much money he's making like 300 grand uh, 300 grand a week I mean I'm sure he could have got more than that with signing on fees and, and what have you um, mm. you know he would have had his pick of clubs there's no question about that Um I think it's a very important thing for Arsenal, not simply because they had to keep one of their big players having let Alexis Sanchez go, but it maybe speaks to Ozil being aware of uh, things that are about to change at Arsenal or things that are going to happen at Arsenal, whether that's a signing of Obama Yang or Mkhitaryan, etc. But in, in the bigger picture, is a 29-year-old Mesut Ozil going to commit the next three or four years of his career to a club that is not willing or has not been willing to display the kind of ambition in the transfer market that it requires to win things again. And I'm, you know, I'm not dismissing the FA Cup or anything like that, mm. but to be competitive in the Premier League, at least to challenge for the title and to get back into the Champions League. Well, I think that he, um, maybe he just knows when he's onto a good thing, you know, maybe... Like letting the contract, <clears throat> excuse me, letting the contract run down um, is something which loads of players, loads of German players are doing now. It's like a big, it's a big strategy in Germany. Um, the agents there have obviously all agreed. This is, you know, you see Emre Chan doing it. You see Goretzka, who's just joining Bayern. Obviously, it happened with Lewandowski joining Bayern. It's, I mean, there's, there's tons of examples, um, and it makes sense. You know, I mean, Ozil essentially can rather than simply going. You know, being uh, sort of playing along with Arsenal and agreeing to sign whatever, you know, the marginally improved terms they give him, he can turn around and say, you know, Mourinho has offered me 400 grand a week. So mm. what do you think of that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I mean, it's a bargaining tool for sure. It does. It does result in um, some pretty high wages if you if you play right. It's, there's obviously the risk that what if you get injured and you know, mm. nobody wants you. But he evidently figured he could take that risk. Um as to whether he, I mean, the thing is that the club he joined in 2013 yeah. right, was already a club that had that was showing some of the problems. In fact, the the, th- the three or four seasons previously were 
worse than the seasons that have just gone by because at least the seasons that have gone by Arsenal have been winning the FA Cup I suppose they were they were qualifying for the Champions League all the time Yeah, um, maybe they didn't feel so far away from the top as they currently do I'm not sure there was necessarily quite as an established top six in yeah. those previous seasons as there is now it, it really seemed Tottenham to be Tottenham weren't well, they, they, they were emerging Redknapp's Tottenham was okay but yeah. never, you could never quite take them seriously because they Harry Redknapp yeah and yeah. they were they would end up in fifth and mm. Arsenal would always overtake them and that was the way it worked and Liverpool were, were a little bit further behind mm. um, yeah. they were sort of going through They're the doldrums terrible, yeah. yeah you know so um, yeah but so but he, he joined that club you know maybe at that time there wasn't um Maybe at that time it was the best option that presented itself, you know, because um, he, he, I can't imagine why then necessarily, because he had been good at Real Madrid. I mean, he, he wasn't like he was a failure at Real Madrid. It was just a merry-go-round, wasn't it? Because yeah. it was Bale had to go to... Yeah. They're trying to get rid of, trying to get rid of Bale for ages. Like, you, can't, you, can't just, you can't just play quite good football and expect them not to want to replace you. You know, mm. you've got to give them a bit more than that, I think, at Real Madrid. Um, but I, I think, I mean, as to whether he knows, I mean, clearly... It is changing. Whether they're going to just continue with Wenger's manager, I, I mean, I doubt. I, I am kind of proceeding on the assumption that he's going to be gone this summer. Yeah, me too. Um, and obviously their policy in the transfer market has already completely changed. So they've signed, the, you know, the, you sign Bruce Dorman's chief scout and then you sign two of the best players from their 2016 team that's not a coincidence. I mean, that's some coincidence if it's a coincidence. You also sign two players who are who are old. Like, I mean, they're 20, 28. They're not old, but they're yeah. much older than the players Wenger signs. You know, mm-hmm. Wenger doesn't doesn't do this. When was the last time he signed? Twenty twelve or something. He signed. Did he sign someone? I read. I think the last time he signed a player this old was twenty twelve. Right. I can't, I can't remember, remember how the hell that they, is. Yeah. I mean, there's there's been so many, but you know, obviously the way that he was doing it wasn't working. Yeah, you know, like um, it just wasn't it just wasn't working. So it seems as though they've accepted that. Uh, but I, I don't know if if I was in Ozil's position, I think I would have done what he has done, and I wouldn't have needed to know necessarily that change was coming from the top, because I still feel as though he's just in such a great position. I mean, what, who who wouldn't want to be in Mesutov's position as a as a footballer? But is that? I mean, surely that's not the only consideration you would have when you sign the last big deal of your football career. Do you want to play for a team season after season that is underperforming in the Premier League, that is struggling for any kind of footballing identity, which Arsenal have been over the last eighteen months, two years? It's got to be frustrating as a player, yeah. You, regardless of what you're being paid, and regardless of how much you like life in London, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, yeah. You know it drive you fucking mad because it drives fans mad but you can't players are people too they must drive them crazy it to drives, be as inconsistent as as uh, yeah. Arsenal have been you know, some of them get crazier than others I mean it seems as though Arsenal have had some players who are quite adapted to the situation maybe that's sort of been part of their problem I mean obviously Sanchez couldn't handle it yeah. <laughs> you know yeah um, you could see and he I know was was very um he displayed it in a very exhibitionistic kind of way. You know, it was he did all his histrionics uh, in front of thousands of people. You yeah. know? <laughs> so look everyone, at my gloves. So everyone knew. Everyone knew how he felt about it. Um, Ozil is, is less is, is not as easy to read. You know how mm. how desperately does he thirst after you know silverware? Yeah, I I, I don't know. But he has moved. I mean, he's played for Real Madrid already. It's not like he's oh. 
there's all these ambitions like he's already played for Real Madrid and won the title with Real Madrid you know um, he's so you know I'm not, I'm not trying to say that Arsenal aren't also big time <laughs> but like he but has not Real Madrid that's no sure. he, yeah, he, yeah. he's already been there he's kind of experienced that now he's like the top player at Arsenal Arsenal are like the biggest club in London London is you know the biggest the wealthiest city in Europe it's like a good position to be in sure you know he's it's it's things can change fast I mean well, who's to say that I mean the, the, the good example of things changing quickly is um, is the Liverpool 2014 season or the Leicester season 20 said Leicester won the title Leicester you know mm-hmm. and, and both of those teams the previous season were nowhere you know they were there nothing was happening you wouldn't have nobody would have picked them to be yeah. challenging for the title or to win the title literally nobody in Leicester City's case and uh, you know, you can, a team can get it together. So he used to say Arsenal wouldn't do that. I mean, Ozil is in, is in such an enviable position. Uh, it's it's the kind of position a player would dream of. I mean, the only thing that's not right for him now is, I mean, the money is right, the sort of stage is right, his status in the club is right. You know, the, the only thing that isn't quite right is the team. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know... Small thing, you know. <laughs> You know, guys like Mkhitaryan and Aubameyang, I'm I'm actually, for the first time in a long time, looking forward to watching Arsenal play so I can see those guys play together. Yeah. Because I'm, I'm interested to see what they do, what they come up with. You know, these are very, very creative players who I think should be on the same kind of wavelength. Well, mm. Aubameyang maybe isn't this, you know, he's a finisher, but a finisher who... who can can read the game, you know, who knows where to run. I mean, a player who scores that many tap-ins, you know? Well, I mean, it, it, it speaks to playing a different way, and I think that's been really um, part of what made January so crazy from an Arsenal point of view, and it was fucking nuts. There's mm. no question about it that this I thought was, it went really well. I, it did. It ended up really well, but it... it, it um, I don't think it was a, a plan necessarily. You know, I think it was just, oh, shit, right, we've got to do it. And then all, all of a sudden, Mkhitaryan for Sanchez becomes a thing. And, okay, well, if we've got Mkhitaryan for Sanchez and we need a striker, Aubameyang, um, there's a good way to, to hook those two players up. If you're bringing in two players of 28 uh, years of age yeah. uh, and asking them to come to a new club in January, the fact that they have a pre-existing connection is a really, really positive thing and helps yeah. push those deals over the line. But it it has been mental. It has, but it's the freshness and the difference. The Theo Walcott is gone. Yeah. Olivier Giroud, yeah. the player I liked, um, despite his limitations, is gone. And you you rob yourself. Alexis Sanchez is gone. But you take away these sort of fail-safe positions that Arsenal have had down the years. Not going right, stick Giroud on. We've mm. always got Giroud to fall back on. Mm. Theo Walcott's finished at Arsenal. Oh, here he is again. And he scored, you know, six goals now. And he's great again. Mm. And all of a sudden, those things are gone. And there has to be a new way yeah. of playing uh, and playing the game. And uh, I think it's great. I think it's great. Yeah. Because, I mean, the one thing I... W- I mean, I think they probably would have rather still had Giroud for the rest of the season. I mean... Probably, but I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing for him to go. No, I mean, it would have... There will be a point in the Europa League when you will think it was a bad thing. Yeah, I I do know that. I'm (laughs) aware of that. There will be a moment. (laughs) Because that that is a a winnable competition. And, you know, English clubs in the final of the last two seasons... It, you know, it worked out for for Man United. Mm. Saved, completely saved Mourinho um, after what would have been a really bad first season. Yeah. You know, if they'd finished f- fifth or sixth, sixth, well, sixth, sixth. finished sixth. 
and not going into not go back into Champions League total disaster so it, 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 it redeemed their entire season and you think Arsenal will be Arsenal are certainly good enough to win it but they, they only have Lacazette I think to play that competition yeah I think you're forgetting Danny Welbeck well of course yeah <laughs> I mean, is Welbeck still a striker? I don't know what Welbeck is anymore. He's a general purpose attacking runner. Yeah, front three player, not necessarily a a striker. Yeah. Um, uh, beset by injury. But, I, you know, I feel, just think, yeah, okay, these, uh, at least Arsenal's first team, to me, looks a lot better now. And interested to see what they do. Wiltshire, he should sign as well. I mean, what's he waiting for? You know what I mean? He should, he should absolutely sign. Mm. Like, because he's kind of a... He he, Arsenal is the only club Jack Wilshere is ever going to be loved, unless he was to go and join like Port Vale or someone. You know, he was to, yeah, unless he was to go really drop down to below his station, Millwall. Yeah. You know, and 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 you know, help them get up to the Premier League or something. He could become like a hero there. Yeah. But uh, he goes somewhere else. No one's ever going to really take him that seriously anymore. Whereas at Arsenal. You know, there's there's a big part of every Arsenal fan that still wants to believe that Wilshire is, you know, the genius that was promised. You know, yeah. That that Wilshire, I mean, who, who was it? I saw it was was it Phil Neville, someone who would worked with. Maybe it was Gary Neville. Gary Neville, yeah. Talking about him head and shoulders above every other midfielder, and you're like, what? What planet are you on, Neville? I mean, he's talking about playing with Wilshire in the England squad, or, or rather coaching the England squad, yeah. and Wilshire was the best midfielder. Now, from yeah. an England point of view, yeah. you can see that. Yeah, I, don't, the, I think that's what he was talking about, not necessarily yeah. the Premier League. There's not too many other, there's not too many other top-class players in that position in the England team. Yeah. But even then, I don't know if I'd have Wilshire at the top, because he's, he's like, he's, he's so immobile. You know what I mean? He, he used to be quite quick sort of skipping about um, with the ball quick with the ball not not fast over long distances but mm. nippy but he's had so many ankle injuries that you're like this guy is leaden now you know he's, he's lost that he used to be able to sort of accel right away from in a kind of a Gaza type way you know the, the yeah, yeah 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 that, that burst through that, the lines the kind yeah. of this same kind of build like slightly barrelly build mm. that Gaza had uh, and that you could see that Wilshire doesn't have he doesn't have the little burst of acceleration anymore now he could still could he still be a kind of a, a classy controlling the game midfielder? He probably has the ability to do it, but I think that Arsenal is the best place for him because sentimentally the crowd is still attached to the dream of Wilshire. You know, like mm. the the what could have been Wilshire is still is still there. Kind of, it's a little pair of rose tinted glasses on every Arsenal fan when they look at Wilshire, which he's he, he's not going to get. I mean, there's, an, there's another argument that says, well, Wilshire needs to get away from all that. You know, he needs to get away and start again, but I'm not sure. He, he reminds me a bit of, say, Robbie Fowler, you know, another player who was great, then got injured, then, in his case, left. Yeah. But he should never have left. You know, he went to wherever, wherever he went to Leeds, Leeds Man City, and... Did he go to Man City? He was in Man City, yeah. yeah. He's a seed. Nobody cared. Everyone seems to have played for Man City. I only remember Peter Schmeichel playing for Man City the other day. He weird, ended, yeah, every, he ended up coming back to coming back to Liverpool, you know, weeping. He, he did come back. <laughs> You've probably forgotten that as well, but he did. I know, I remember him coming back to... Wilshire, I mean... Now, I, when, when I hear that he hasn't signed... I wonder if they've offered him a contract. They've offered him a contract with 
I think it's a more incentive-based contract. You have to play to get money. You've got to play. You've got to, you know, be available. See, I don't, be I don't even... That. Yeah, you could, because he could easily just run his contract down and get a bigger contract elsewhere. Mm. But I don't suppose you could blame Arsenal for being cautious in terms of what they offer a player whose injury problems have been such a, such a huge uh, thing in his career. You know, I know he's got problems with his ankle. Arsenal are uh, as aware of his injury record as as anyone else. There was a a moment uh, in a game a few weeks back where he blocked a shot with his foot. It was that thing where you you know block it with the the your toes basically oh, and, yeah. and your ankle bends and it's really fucking painful. Mm. So whether you do it at professional level or five aside level, it hurts. Mm. And Arsene Wenger afterwards was asked about it. He said, "No, it's all right. It's his good ankle." <laughs> you know, which is tantamount to saying that one of them is basically yeah. fucked yeah. and could go at any time or could cause a problem at any time. And I think Arsenal are aware of that. They're also aware of the sentimentality that exists around Wilshire. He is a homegrown player. He yeah. is somebody who cares and, and everything else. But they're trying to be realistic. Like, I wonder if, um, if Jack Wilshire was Abu Dhabi, for example who had similar injury problems and everybody mm. said get rid of him get rid get rid get rid Mm-mm. and Arsenal tried their best to make it happen for Abu Dhabi but they wanted the club to be ruthless yeah. about their decision making when it came to offering him a new contract ultimately they let him go yeah. and with Wilshire I think there's a bit more pressure on them to to provide him a contract mm. um, but it's a difficult situation well, Wilshire should Wil- Wilshire in my opinion should um, also kind of meet them halfway because it's not like he's not hot property you know I mean maybe he was sitting at home watching Gary Neville talk about how great he used to be mm. and thinking well you know I'm I'm still kind of top but you're not you know he, he's who who would I mean when he was alone Bournemouth and then I, he couldn't even really get in Bournemouth's team it's like Harry Arthur was keeping him out of the team you know yeah. it's like I don't think that there'd be any shortage of suitors but you're talking about playing for a Swansea or a, a mid-table team Everton and Everton, you know, yeah. yeah, I think that's w- where it would go for him, yeah. and uh, he's got to ask, you know, I, I mean, like he, he's from from being like the the English Xavi, you know. I mean, mm-hmm. I, the, the Barcelona game, I mean, the, the in twenty eleven, I mean, seven years ago, yeah. seven years is half a career, you know. That's yeah. how long ago it is. Yeah. Um, but he was sensational in this game. But from being that, he's kind of sunk down to being like a Tom Cleverley figure. You know what I mean? Like sure. a, a kind of. Well, is he that good? And I, I, because I remember seeing him, I've seen him be really good. I still kind of feel, why, why couldn't that happen again? I know that it's kind of unlikely, but I just, I think that he's at the right place now. So why, 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 why they can't sort it out, I don't know. Maybe some, somebody maybe needs to be less stingy or less greedy. I'm not sure which it is. Yeah, well, we'll, we'll wait and see. I think, I think it'll probably happen, but um, yeah, the longer it doesn't happen, the, the more. Um, the more doubts you have but look uh, we've been waffling here for quite some time so um, I'm going to leave it there uh, thank you as ever for popping in I'll catch you at the start of next season Hello, thanks very much for having me on thank 
Thank you very much indeed to Ken. You can find him on Twitter at Ken Earlies. That is at Ken Earlies. And Ken, of course, is part of the Second Captains podcast crew, which is based here in Dublin. They give you a free football show on a Monday, but they do other football stuff during the week, of course. That is subscription-based. You'll find it at patreon.com forward slash second captains. It's a fiver a month, and they do quite a bit of other sport, general sport as well. There's a bit of Irish focus, of course, because they are based over here. But if you're looking for a new football podcast or something you haven't heard before, for a fiver a month, it's well worth it just for the football stuff alone. So uh, check it out, patreon.com forward slash secondcaptains or secondcaptains.com. Right, there's not a lot left for me to talk about on this particular episode. We've been through it all from Tottenham versus Arsenal to uh, diving to Jack Wilshire, Mesut Ozil, the whole lot. Hope you enjoyed the show. If you did, remember, please give us a review or a rating on iTunes. That would be very much appreciated. It really helps, uh, gets us up the iTunes charts. And of course, the more people see the podcast, the better. So if you could uh, take a minute to do that, that would be great. You don't have to, of course, only if you feel like it. Nothing is compulsory. I'm not going to make any demands of you. Whatever you feel like doing yourself is okay with me. So look, let's keep fingers crossed for tomorrow when we play Spurs at Wembley. The early game and three points would set up the rest of the weekend beautifully. So let's hope that that happens. James and I will be here with an Arscast Extra on Monday looking back on whatever goes down at Wembley tomorrow or today whenever you're listening to this. In the meantime, have yourselves a good one. Thanks again. Cheers. Bye-bye. This is Spurs Fan TV. We are here at the Tottenham Training Ground. We've been given exclusive behind-the-scenes access ahead of the North London derby against Arsenal. Arsenal, eh? Boo! They're really bad at stuff and their mums smell awful. But, as I said, we are here to witness training to see the players pull through their paces ahead of the game, all the different training drills that they'll be doing. I'm getting a signal from over there that I've got to be quiet now because they're just about to start the training. So, let's go over and see what they're up to. That triple Selco from Delhi Ali was just, oh, I think it's the most beautiful thing I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> oh, no, turn off. Turn off the camera. Turn off. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, 
HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm. 